Well, again, it's so good to be here with you all again this morning. Uh, third time now, so uh, must not have done too badly more recently. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. <laughs> no, it's always a pleasure to be back with you all. And so I'd like to invite you to go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke 2. Uh, we're going to be reading from verses 21 through 35. And as you can imagine, you know, this is going to be a Christmas-related uh, sermon. Uh, you know, this is, of course, the first Sunday of Advent as we were just celebrating and lighting the candle. And it was just really beautiful to see the Murrays uh, lead us in worship in that way. So, again, we're going to be in Luke 2, 21 through 35. Now, that said, though, uh, this passage, as you turn to it, you're going to probably recognize, okay, this is already after Jesus was born, uh, contextually speaking. And here we're about to see, I think, a fairly unique uh, presentation of the gospel message in this text. You know, we might be thinking shepherds, wise men, things of that nature, you know, pictures of the nativity scene. We often think of these scenes in our mind, and rightfully so, at Christmas time. Uh, but here we're actually going to be looking at Jesus as an infant shortly after uh, he was circumcised, coming to be consecrated at the temple. So we're actually fast forwarding a little bit in terms of the nativity scene because. The gospel here provides us, I think, with a very uh, powerful and yet unique uh, demonstration of God's love for us. So we recognize here through our passage, we will even here in a moment, see that God is not only willing to step into the mess of our lives, but that he actually desires to step into the mess of our lives. And in fact, he himself is our righteousness the one who could and only could fulfill the law of God, even as a little infant, just days old. So that'll be the theme for us this morning, Christ fulfilling all righteousness. And let's go ahead at this point now and read from our passage in Luke 2, verse 21 and following. The word of the Lord says this, And at the end of eight days, when he, meaning Jesus, of course, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem, meaning Mary and Joseph, to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. 
and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Why? So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the reading of God's holy word for we're faithful and true and given to each one of us who believe in love over us. For this in mind, let's go ahead and pray before our Father. Lord God, we thank you that you've given us your word. And even as we come to this season of Advent, the first Sunday of Advent, recognizing the beauty of your condescension, your incarnation, your coming to us in the flesh, we thank you, O Lord, that you came to fulfill all righteousness. And even as a baby, you came for us to live in our place, to die in our place, to be raised and so bring us life as well. So we thank you, Jesus, for this wonderful gospel that speaks wonderful truths about you. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we come now to the preaching of your holy word, that you would be honored and magnified, that Christ Jesus would be exalted, that we, like Simeon, would be so led by the Spirit to hear the word of Christ and to receive with gladness and joy and humility the word of truth as it is now preached over each one of us. Pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to only begin even to fathom the wondrous mystery that we have in the gospel of grace presented to us here in Luke chapter 2. And so we pray all this in Christ's holy and majestic name. Amen. Friends, the late Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle, wonderful theologian, I'm sure Several of you here have heard of him before. Uh, He has this wonderful commentary on the Gospel of Luke. And it's one of my favorite commentaries, not just because of the content, but because of how big the commentary itself is. It's sitting in my bookshelf, and it literally takes about three inches of space on the bookshelf alone. Just this big, wide uh, commentary on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Obviously, J.C. Ryle had much to say about this, and What I think is amazing is about this passage in particular, he brings up this point in his commentary that names have meaning. And he kind of emphasizes that for a while in his commentary, J.C. Ryle does. Names have meaning. And it was very purposeful as to why here we see at the very beginning in verse 21 that Mary and Joseph named Jesus, Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua in the Hebrew, Joshua. You might be thinking, well, why? Like, why Jesus? You know, it's so common, of course, especially to us who grew up in the church. We think of Jesus, and we just, we just know that name. But especially for them, it would have been an interesting name. You know, why Yeshua, meaning Savior? Why not things regarding his divinity, uh, his, maybe his offices, right, that we talk about in our Reformed circles? Why not prophet, priest, king? Why not a name that had to do with him judging the world in righteousness, Why not him as a ruler, as a kingly figure over us? Why the name Jesus exactly, right? Well, of course, names do, of course, mean things. We often don't think about that as much in our culture nowadays, but I'm sure it was not lost on Mary and Joseph that they were commanded by the angel Gabriel. As we were reading earlier in Luke 1, they were commanded to name him Jesus, Savior, Joshua. And they did this in obedience to the Lord's direction a few verses prior. 
But again, why the name Jesus exactly? Why not those more powerful, majestic, strong-sounding names? Why Jesus, Savior? Well, this name above every other rightful name that could and does indeed belong to Jesus, this name Jesus, Savior Joshua, speaks so clearly to us of his mercy how he relates to us, his people, how he loves us. It speaks to us of his grace. It speaks to us of his willingness to actually help us in the midst of even our most dire afflictions in this life. Jesus, Savior, the merciful one, the loving one. It speaks especially of his desire to deliver us from our sins to the uttermost. This is perhaps the most personal name of Jesus that we read throughout the scriptures, of Christ himself, our Savior. And so this morning, I want us to focus on two aspects of Jesus as our Savior here that are presented to us in Luke 2, 21 through 35. Uh, the first aspect is that Jesus as our Savior, the merciful one, was appointed for us. So Jesus was appointed for us. But the second aspect is this, that Jesus wasn't just appointed for us. He was indeed, of course, sacrificed for us. So he's appointed for us and sacrificed for us. We see this first aspect of the gospel of Jesus saving us, even here in verses 21 through 24. So here we see um, this idea of him being appointed for us. Now, oftentimes we, uh, and there's a few doctors in the room, so I need to be careful with this, but we often don't think of appointments as a very fun thing. You know, you think of a doctor's appointment. I don't, I don't like that word appointment. You know, I'm dreading that. But Jesus was appointed for a very clear purpose. Verse 21 drives us to see what his purpose, what his appointment was. It says this again, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called, as we've said, Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, the reason why I'm calling this a, an appointment of sorts then is, again, not just because we love, you know, medical appointments and doctor visits and whatnot, <laughs> or exams if you're a student or whatever the appointment might be for that day, maybe meeting with someone. <laughs> but the reason why I'm calling this appointment of sorts is because in the original Greek language, this phrase, at the end of eight days, implies this need for fulfillment. And in fact, it actually does more than just implying it. It actually, in the Greek, has that same word for fulfillment twice over in verse 21 and 22. At the end of eight days, there was a purpose behind this. Something had to happen. And that, again, that word for fulfillment there in the Greek is used not just in verse 21, but also in verse 22. And furthermore, the concept of Christ actively fulfilling all that he had come to do is just continuously alluded to throughout the rest of this passage. And so right off the bat, we have to understand that Jesus was indeed appointed to something. He was appointed to fulfill something something that had to happen in the fullness of time, as Galatians 4 later on says. Now, it's hard to translate this idea of fulfillment into our modern English language. That's why the ESV and other translations don't have that word fulfillment necessarily. It says that he, you know, uh, that he uh, did these things. These things were done even to him. 
But we get this sense of urgency here, here in verses 21 through 22, especially in the way that this is phrased. See, the original Greek, if you were to kind of woodenly translate it, would essentially say something like this. When the eight days to circumcise him, there's the purpose, to circumcise him, were fulfilled. Yada, yada, yada. You know, they named him Jesus. And then later on in verse 22, it says that with the same construct, grammatically speaking, when the days of their cleansing were fulfilled. It's that same idea. In other words, the events here in our passage were time sensitive. They had to happen even as Jesus was only eight days old and then likely 40 days old when he was being presented at the temple. They had to be fulfilled by Christ. And they had to be done at the exact right moment in time as an eight-day-old or as a 40-day-old later on here in our passage. So it begs the question then, of course, for us, well, what exactly was Jesus fulfilling as a little baby? What, were, what was the meaning, really, behind these signs of circumcision in verse 21 and the signs of cleansing that we read of here, the presentation of him in the temple in our passage well, these are really important questions for us to ask in order to understand what is actually going on in our passage. And thankfully, Luke, the gospel writer, makes it very clear to us. He answers what was going on. If you look at verse 23 with me, you'll see that Luke begins to explain the meaning. He says this in verse 23, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. In other words, Jesus had to obey the law because he came in the flesh to obey it even for us where we have failed. And in verse 24, we read that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple in order to do what? It says this, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. And then it quotes here from the Old Testament, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. In other words, they were recognizing that they, Mary and Joseph, publicly had to admit their own need of cleansing and right standing before God. Theirs here was an act of faith toward God in the exercise of obedience, specifically to the commands of Exodus 13, verse 1, and Leviticus 12, verse 8, where they are uh, quoting these passages regarding the sacrifices and the cleansing rituals. But their obedience... Mary and Joseph's obedience honestly stood in stark contrast to a lot of the people in Israel at that time. It's easy for us to kind of have rose-colored glasses as to what was going on and think, okay, they all believed and all the Jews were great and they had this all figured out. Uh, many of them didn't. Uh, they were blind. They were people that walked in darkness, right, who had seen a great light as Jesus came. See, many people, especially the Jews, by this point yet again, and again and again, had forsaken God. They had adulterated God's covenantal obligations. Many of them were not obeying the law. They were not taking their infants, their firstborn, to the temple. What's beautiful, though, is that Mary and Joseph actually did. Uh, they, they feared God. They were dutiful and joyful in presenting Christ. See, unfortunately, at that time, men of power and persuasion had arisen amongst the people of Israel. People that we know of later on in the gospel, such as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And these Sadducees and Pharisees ended up either liberalizing or legalizing the law of God. They either didn't take it seriously enough 
and added things to it, or they ended up adding their own laws to it. Uh, Some of them even took away things from the law. But we see here in the act of God's faithfulness to Mary and Joseph is that God actually showed favor to them and caused them to obey. See, much like Abraham, who had offered up his firstborn son, Isaac, to God, and much like Hannah, who had offered up Samuel, her firstborn son, to the priestly ordinances of God, Mary and Joseph here in Luke 2 are also now seen offering up their firstborn son unto God. He is, in fact, the one who was to be consecrated. And praise the Lord that they obeyed. That's his kindness toward them. But see, something so much more grand than simple obedience to God's precepts is on display in our passage. This isn't a passage exalting Mary or exalting Joseph by any means. Rather, it was in their ordinary obedience to the law that we see the magnificence of Christ begin to shine all the more brightly because he is the focal point. Christ is the object of our, object of our worship. He is the one who was actually actively obeying the law even as a baby. See, through what Christ was accomplishing, even here as a 40-day-old in this part of our text, through these things that he was accomplishing, an everlasting piercing light would then shine forth into the darkness of our own fallen human condition. And so in essence, Christ's presentation at the temple is just the beginning of what theologians, including uh, Machen that we were learning of earlier this morning, uh, call the active obedience of Christ. Him fulfilling every jot and tittle of the law completely in our place, only then to attribute it to us, his perfect righteousness to us. In other words, Christ perfectly obeyed and fulfilled every last part of the law for us in spite of our own failure to keep it. So as to then attribute his righteousness, his goodness, his faithfulness to us. So that when God the Father looks at us who believe in Christ, he doesn't see us and all of our sin, but he rather sees the beauty, the righteousness, the glory of Christ over us, speaking the truth of the gospel over us. This is why it's no accident that the very first verse in the gospel of Luke, Luke 1 verse 1, begins by referring to the whole sum of Christ's life, death, and resurrection as being what he accomplished for us. See, the gospel from beginning to end is all about Jesus. He's the one who gets the glory. And praise be to God for that. Now that said, there are a host of ways that we could wrongly misinterpret this passage. And I'm sure all of us, including myself, have heard examples of this. We might seek to elevate Mary or Joseph. Look how good they were. Look at their obedience. And we could fail to recognize that they actually needed to obey the law of God too. That's what they were doing here. They were obeying God's law. We could look at Mary and Joseph and even fail to recognize that they themselves needed to be cleansed. Again, hence why they went to the temple to offer a sacrifice in the first place, for their own sins even. We could look at this passage and maybe think also wrongly that Jesus needed to go through these cleansing rituals for his own sake. When of course he didn't. He did it for us. 
But if we were to think that way wrongly about Jesus, we would be neglecting his deity and his sinlessness in thinking that way. Rather, what Christ was doing, even as a young infant, was being consecrated at the temple, the very center of God's covenantal dealings with us, his people, for your sake and for mine alike. He did this for us in love. This is astounding when you begin to just sit in this truth for a little while. Christ fulfilling all righteousness for you, for me. See, the king of glory humbly submitted himself to the law for our sake. In light of his matchless power and his divine relationship to God the Father as the eternal Son, Jesus, our Savior, chose to be numbered with every other Jewish male child undergoing this same monotonous ritual cleansing. And yet Jesus willfully and lovingly stepped into the mundanity of our own lives, the ordinary things even, the day-to-day in order to fulfill all righteousness. He who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became poor. And so in verse 24, we're reminded of this aspect of Christ's priestly condescension for us to intercede for each one of us who believe. Luke notes then that Mary and Joseph brought either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons in accordance with Leviticus 12, verse 8. And we won't dive into that passage per se, today, but the truth of Leviticus is saying that really these animals were purposed as a burnt offering, uh, one of them, and then the other one as a sin offering. That's why there were two animals presented. But if you were at some point to flip over to the instructions that were given in Leviticus 12, you would notice that the provision of these two birds was actually specifically and expressly offered for those who were so poor and were unable to provide the original sacrifice that God had commanded for sin in this situation. The original sacrifice that God had given to his people was actually the sacrifice of a year-old spotless lamb. This speaks so much about God's heart for his people. In this way, God's message is made clear to us. See, in our own impoverished ability to meet the law of God, God graciously provides the way in himself. He knows our weakness. He knows even our financial or our physical state. But more than just him knowing our weakness, we see yet another picture of the gospel here in front of us. See, where Mary and Joseph couldn't even have the financial means to provide an actual literal lamb, they brought Jesus the true lamb of God. Yeah, they might have brought turtle doves or pigeons, but Jesus is the true lamb that they brought to the temple to be consecrated. And so the sacrificial lamb is not really entirely absent from this picture, is it? Rather, Christ, friends, is the lamb here in Luke 2. He is the lamb who was appointed to meet the very demands of the law, to atone for us, to cleanse us. As Galatians 4 goes on to later say in the word, Christ was born of woman born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. Do you see then the very heart of God on display for you even here in Luke 2? See, this Jesus who is the wonderful counselor, the almighty God, 
is also our Prince of Peace and the one who makes peace by the blood of his cross. He is the only one who could do this between us sinners and a holy, righteous God. And his sacrificial death for us is prefigured even here as he is brought to the temple for the very first time like a lamb, silent. Silent. Well, this brings us to the second point of our passage this morning, that Jesus was not just appointed for us, but that he was sacrificed for us. And we'll see this especially in verses 25 through 35. See, here in verse 25, we begin to see a stark turning point in the narrative. Again, not to Greek out too much on you guys this morning, it's just important. Uh, The sentence in the Greek doesn't begin with a softer word for now or and, you know, oh, now this happened. It's actually a much stronger word. Uh, It do is the word. And it's the word behold, as the King James puts it. Behold. Now, of course, we don't talk this way now. We don't go around saying, behold you or behold this, you know. If we did, it might be a little scary. (laughs) It might run some friends off. So this probably sounds foreign to us. Behold, you know, but why, why is Luke saying behold here? Behold, this happened here in verse 25. Well, I believe that the gospel writer Luke is intentionally using this word behold repeatedly at this point in our passage to showcase the unfolding of God's redemptive plan right before our eyes. Behold, something big is about to happen. Something big is about to happen in terms of the redemptive story going on here in the gospel of Luke. For instance, again, earlier when the Murrays were reading the scripture from Luke 1, when Gabriel appeared to Elizabeth, and then later on to Mary, and then even again when the angels appeared to the shepherds in the countryside, that word behold is used over and over and over again to signify a, like an intensified view of redemptive history. Behold, this happened. Behold, this happened. Behold, this happened. It's better and better. Well, now that same word behold is used again at the starting of this part of our passage to signify a shifting of focus, a shifting away from this idea of cleansing or consecration alone, and a shifting now to the theme of sacrifice, sacrifice for sin. And Luke does this by introducing Simeon into the story, into the narrative. Now, if you look at the text with me, how is Simeon described exactly? Well, he's described as being a righteous man, or in our ESV, a devout man, a holy man, <laughs> a man who was waiting for the consolation or the peace of Israel. See, much like Abraham and every other Old Testament believer before Simeon, he was justified by his faith in God, and he was considered righteous by God as a result, hence why he's called a devout man. But furthermore, Luke seems to use this word devout regarding Simeon to refer to his attendance to God and his ways. Meaning, Simeon wasn't just dutiful. He, he loved God. He was there because he desired to see Christ. He desired to see the Redeemer in the flesh one day. That was his prayer. Now, this word for devout is not that common in the New Testament But I notice in my own studies that whenever it's used, really especially in the books of Luke and Acts, which Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, it's often used to juxtapose um, the righteous people that's referring to with an unjust or ungodly secular culture around them. 
So there's a devout person in the midst of a sea of debauchery, in other words, or sinfulness. And as such, I believe personally that this picture then of Simeon being devout when so many others were not is there to remind us that even when sin is at its darkest in our culture, in our society, in the world around us, the Lord is always safeguarding a remnant of those who follow him despite the odds. See, much like Lot in the midst of Sodom or Daniel in the heart of Babylon in exile, or like Jeremiah in the courts of the evil king Zedekiah, the Lord will always maintain witness to his power and his glory, even when the world around us seems so bleak. Do you believe that he is doing the same even now in our own postmodern culture? Do you believe that he is preserving a remnant for himself, a people that he desires to be devout in the midst of an otherwise very sinful culture? Friends, I can imagine that I am not the only one grieving the current state of our nation, especially over the last few years since 2020. See, our generation, especially over the last few years, has just been intensified. It's become increasingly antagonistic and even hostile against the very bride of Christ. And as we have all undergone radical life changes over the past few years, again, especially from 2020 and beyond, it can be so difficult for us now to maintain a sense of real hope-filled optimism in a world that seems so dark and so antagonistic to God. But know this, that come whatever may, whatever happens to this culture around us, the word of the Lord will continue to go forth and make inroads in the life of his church exactly as he has planned. And even the society will be affected, secondarily speaking, just as God has purposed. He will protect his church. He will protect you, come whatever may. And so in the midst of each one of our own uncertainties in this life, where you might work, where you are friends with people who are lost, etc., Jesus Christ will prove himself to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we have every reason to yet still praise him. Now, arguably, this, this figurative darkening of the land around Israel and Jerusalem even was also the same historic context in which Israel, uh, sorry, Simeon was yet still worshiping God most high. He probably felt a lot like us. He was among those in Israel of whom Isaiah had prophesied way back in Isaiah 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And so through this Christ whom Simeon was about to see in the flesh now before him, God would indeed multiply his people and increase their joy and divide amongst them the spoils of Christ's victory. Simeon, by God's grace, had eyes to see God's salvation and hope in yet, uh, that which was yet to still come. Look now, if you will, at Luke 2.27, where we see again Simeon enter into the temple and notice that he is brimming with the hope of God's peace in sight. We read that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it seems apparent to us that as soon as he saw Jesus, the Holy Spirit confirmed to him that this was, this little child, was indeed the Messiah that Simeon had been waiting his life for. 
And most astoundingly, that this Messiah, even as a little baby, was already beginning to accomplish all of the law concerning him. And so Simeon rightfully, gleefully took up that child into his arms, blessed God, and poured forth praise. A beautiful epitaph that we see in verses 29 through 32. It says this again, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So friends, what did Simeon see in the Christ child? What did he see? So many things. First, he arguably saw Isaiah 7, 14, like we read earlier, play out before his eyes. That the virgin who was with child had born a son, God with us. And that he was not just born miraculously, though that's amazing in of itself, but he was born to fulfill all righteousness and all prophetic mysteries concerning this same Messiah. I can't imagine how enthusiastic then Simeon must have been to finally see with certainty his own Savior, now in the flesh, a baby right before him, fulfilling all righteousness. And so with other confidence, he testified by the Holy Spirit that his own eyes had seen the Lord's, and there's our word again, salvation, Jesus, Savior, a light, the light really, that would reveal God himself to those outside of the house of Israel and bring purification and blamelessness to all who call upon him by faith and repentance. But beyond the absolute hype that I'm sure Simeon was experiencing here in our passage, there is one thing above all else that is perhaps most curious about his prophetic words here in verses 29 and following. See, Simeon boldly proclaimed here that God had prepared this child to be the salvation for his people. In other words, God was willfully stepping in to the mess of our lives to redeem us from the curse of sin that is death. And this news was nothing short of marvelous then. As we read earlier in Sunday school, plans that were formed of old, plans that were faithful and sure, as it says in Isaiah 25, one and following, were now being revealed moment by moment by moment. The God who had promised to swallow up death forever is the same God who had sent his son to come in the flesh and to accomplish so great a salvation. But in the midst of all this marveling, Simeon then turned to Mary in a very peculiar way. He turned to her and he shared with her the sobering words that we read of in verses 34 through 35. He said this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, time would certainly fail us to try to unpack all the rising and falling that is talking about here, the rising and falling of Israel in today's sermon but I believe that there is a very simple truth that we can take away from it. 
See, just as the Lord God had created the heavens and the earth, separating out light from darkness, separating ocean from sky, separating sun from moon, and drawing up man from the dust of the earth, creating man in his own image and likeness, so we are new creations in Christ by his Holy Spirit's work. We do not belong to this world, but we have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, out of spiritual death into the newness of Jesus' life, out from under the curse of our own sins into the joy of eternal life secured and offered in Christ. But what is most fascinating is that the tool of this separation, the old man from the new, death and life, the tool of this separation between those who would fall and rise on account of Christ Jesus is nothing other than the cross itself. That was the sword that God used. See, as Simeon had prophesied, the cross really proved to be a sign that is opposed. I imagine we're probably going to sing this at my own church back in Lynchburg, and I'm sure you'll sing it at some point soon, but the song, What Child Is This?, Toward the end of that hymn, a lot of churches don't often sing this part, but I love the ending of the hymn, What Child Is This? Because it says this, exactly like what Simeon had prophesied. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. And so hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Friends, for all of us who are in Christ, who are not ashamed of the cross, Christ is the only sure sanctuary and safe shelter for each of our souls, just as Isaiah 8.14 tells us. But for those who are outside of Christ, his cross, his gospel even, is a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. As 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, Christ and his sacrificial death for us would effectively work salvation for all who have faith in him, who turn, who repent from their sins and find true eternal life in him. Christ's righteous obedience of the whole law, perfectly obeyed then, would one day and has been fully attributed to us who turn from our sin and who turn by faith to Christ and call upon his name for salvation. Is that you this morning? Do you know this Savior for yourself? Friends, know that for those who are trusting in their own works, they are doomed to live based on their own failed merits before God. There is no success to be had through that. There is no salvation there. We must truly turn to Christ and be saved. For those who are left standing on their own failed merits before God, again, there is no hope. Accordingly, so, so many, even as the gospel message is preached at this time of the year, Christmas season, so many around us, we will see, will both fall and still yet rise 
at the birth of this king. And just as Simeon had prophesied, the thoughts from many hearts toward the only redeemer of God's elect will be revealed more and more in time as he sifts those who believe and those who don't believe further away. And so this is a call in many ways to come to faith in Christ. But friends, as we conclude though, what are your own thoughts for Christ? Especially of those of you who believe, like myself. What are the thoughts of your own heart even toward this Savior, Jesus? Perhaps recent events in your own life have tested your faith like never before. Perhaps you're living in the midst of trials, maybe from past restrictions like we all went through a few years ago. Things that have dismantled your personal network of support. Maybe you've lost friends or loved ones even in recent years. Perhaps you are approaching Christmas this season with concerns over family relationships and yet healing wounds that are being reopened as you've been around family members and friends. Whatever the case, if you are in Christ, there is one who is yet with you to the very end, the hope-filled end that we have in him. For he who guards his people, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, will not let your foot be moved. And this Savior's name is Emmanuel. God with us. God for us. Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that yours truly is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we thank you, O Lord, for the sign that is folly to the world, but a sign that is salvation for us. We thank you, O Lord, for the cross. We thank you, Lord, for coming for us, for being appointed, for being sacrificed for us. And we thank you, O Lord, that truly we have life in you. So Jesus, as we begin this Christmas season, this first Sunday in Advent, we ask, O Lord, that you would be magnified and glorified in our midst, that our joy in you would be made all the more complete as we rest upon Christ, even as he started to fulfill the law in his early infancy. We thank you, O Lord, for the gracious gift of your son who loved us and who gave himself for us. So Jesus, we cannot help but proclaim these wonderful gospel truths in our midst to each other and to a world that is in such desperate need of you. And so to that end, Lord, we pray, praying together even as our Lord Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer, praying together. Our, our Father, Father in heaven, Lord, Lord, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.